today on Ag News Daily. There's not a mandate behind E15. There's just the opportunity to provide it. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Mike Pearson here on this Wednesday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I am joined, as always, by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? Not too bad, Mike. It's uh, not too bad of a day here in central Iowa. Actually, not too cold to compared to what it has been. I feel like we just kind of skipped over fall and went straight to winter, but today feels like a good fall day. It does. Today is. It's sunny. The sky is blue. There is a little bit of a warm-up coming to our friends in the western part of the Corn Belt. You eastern Corn Belt folks really look in the Mississippi River and east. Sounds like there's a winter storm cooking and heading that way. Ooh, that makes me cold just thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that that sucks. Mm. But it is winter, of course, in the Midwest, and that's just kind of what you get. We're still in the season of fall. Are are we, though? I mean, it feels like. I think the first day of winter isn't until middle of December. Well, yeah, but that's not real. That's just what, you know, meteorologists use. Real winter starts as soon as the temperature gets below 50. It's wintertime, and it's terrible, and I just complain nonstop until about the middle of May. Yeah, sometimes middle of April. Yeah. Well, that's the uh, the weather update there. You know, we ought to have Ed Valley on again here as we're getting close to that seasonal shift and get his thoughts, but we don't have him on today. Instead, we've got a couple great conversations, one from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, as well as one from you, Delaney, down at the National mm-hmm. Association of Farm Broadcasters. Yep. Bruce is going to bring us an update on E15 and ethanol and then I think a nice little segue into my interview with the current National Corn Growers Association President, Lynn Crisp. Fantastic. Before we get into the inver- in- interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Today, your first what time you, talking, Mike? Boy, I guess so. What do you say we hit the news? Yeah, it's a bit of a slow news day, Mike, but I guess to kick things off here with the Farm Bill, um, This week is kind of a critical week, according to Chairman Mike Conaway, because this week is really one of the turning points of the week of the time here for the farm bill, because there's only three weeks left in in the Senate and House before they go to holiday recess. And they basically have to it's written, but there's still things that they have issues on. Roberts, Pat Roberts said that they know they have issues. They know how close. They know how to close out all of the titles that they're working on, but they're just not there yet. So as we talked about yesterday, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to get this done by the end of the year. I think an extension is more than likely going to happen. Yeah, they may be close, but of course, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Right. It doesn't count in getting a political legislation to, uh, into action. So. All right. Well, we'll continue to keep an eye on that, but I've got a feeling you're probably correct, Delaney. It will take an extension and probably the new Congress to get seated before this thing can actually get solved. Mm -hmm. Which then I think we'll shake it up again and you'll have, you know, the switch up of Democrat versus Republican. So will that prolong the process? I would say more than likely. Yeah, but at the same time, that the Senate didn't change, and the Senate version doesn't have the work requirements in the SNAP 
part of the bill. The House does. The House did change, and the Democrats are opposed to that anyway. So right. I'm guessing we'll see a farm bill without the work requirements for SNAP, and I'm guessing that's what will get, uh, get passed through. Although – can't President Trump veto that because he has said he wants to see stricter work requirements? Yeah, I mean, he absolutely could. I don't think it's going to pass with a supermajority. But at the same time, boy, I, I've got to imagine President Trump would like to be able to give a victory to the American farmer rather than, you know, one more setback between mm -hmm. the trade war and now the grape wine thing with France and Having a farm bill passed would probably be a feather in his cap, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I would say you're probably right there, but it is a possibility. Oh, absolutely. Everything's a possibility, Delaney. The world is a, the future is a foreign country, right? Isn't that the saying? I don't think I've ever heard that saying. Yeah, something like that. Something. No, the you past just made is it a up. Foreign country. You made I, it I don't up. Know. No, there, there's a saying. I just don't know what it is. Listeners, chime in. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. Let me know what the heck that saying is. <laughs> um, I've got some news yesterday, Delaney. You were talking about the campfire over in California, the mm -hmm. one that has uh, continues to burn. There are several over there, and uh, they, they're very devastating. 223 people still missing. We do have an update. Victims of the deadliest wildfire have now filed a lawsuit against PG&E. Um, PG&E Corp is the utility company, and these victims are alleging that they were negligent in their health and safety code, uh, keeping they, they were violating their health and safety code, and that was what caused the fire. And so they're hoping that uh, that the court's going to agree to them, agree with them, and I guess award some monetary damages. However, PG&E said in a statement that right now the cause of the campfire has yet to be determined by the fire inspectors. So I guess I don't know where mm. where this lawsuit's going to go if they haven't determined this is where the fire started yet. That's where the entire that's where they think the entire fire started. This particular fire, the campfire okay. is um it's the one that burned the town of Paradise about 175 miles north of San Francisco. Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. I don't know who you sue for that. Well, uh, they're going to try for PG&E, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, got a little bit of an update here on South Korean trade. As we know, last week there were quite a few 50 representatives in South Korea to talk about trade and opening market access for agriculture. Specifically, rice farmers are... Uh, definitely a group that wants more market access into South Korea. And the USDA Foreign Agricultural Service Administrator, Ken Isley, said that last week he pressed South Korean government officials during his trade meeting. And followed by that, they actually held a round of South Korean trade delegation talks in Washington last Friday and uh, said that he said that U.S. negotiators made it very clear to South Koreans that the Trump administration was not going to let up on pressure. The South Korean delegation responded by assuring U.S. negotiators that a proposal to increase U.S. market access is in the works, but unfortunately didn't give a time frame on how long that that would take. Yeah, geez, we're so close on so many different things, and yet we're so far. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's 
that's the way things are going in 2018. I know a lot of folks feel that exact same way about their corn and soybean harvest. They're so mm-hmm. close. I know. And yet still so far. Um, I've got some kind of depressing news for our producer friends up in North and South Dakota. The Bakken oil patch continues to produce more and more crude. Right now, they're up to 1.3 million barrels per day of production. The reason this matters is pipelines up there can only transport 1.25 million barrels per day, which means that other, uh, what, half a million barrels is having to be carried out by railroads. So on top of the worsening basis for soybeans in North Dakota due to the lack of shipments out of the Pacific Northwest, we're probably going to see another hit to basis as those crude oil trains move back into the picture like they were in 2013 and gobble up a lot of those locomotives. So that is going to be frustrating here as we head into winter for our listeners and friends up there in the North Country. Mm Yeah, especially because they're still sitting on so many soybeans. I think now the concern is because we've had such cold weather early on, we're not going to be able to get stuff up and down the Mississippi, not be able to get stuff out, basically. Oh, boy. And then the whole trade thing doesn't help. I know. Yeah. And speaking of the trade stuff, this is a little bit more specific to Iowa, But Iowa State University did a study recently showing basically the impacts of what this continued trade war, trade dispute could do over the next year. And they found that disruptions and loss of market share will cost Iowa's economy between $1 and $2 billion for the year of 2019. They calculated that the average loss for Iowa's soybean industry would be at about 400 or excuse me, $545 million, 333 million for corn, 776 million for hogs, and ethanol projections would cost the state's ethanol producers about $105 million in revenue. So, you know, Iowa is definitely a leader in a lot of those industries. So a lot of other states will for sure follow suit if that's uh, what we continue to see. As we're getting into Bruce Gorder's report here about E15, I did have one other piece of E15 related news before we turn it over to him. And that is coming out of China. China has been apparently switching their imports of U.S. ethanol via alternative routes since the U.S.-China trade war kind of erupted here in March, April, May timeframe, according to the country's general administration of customs data. They released a report on Tuesday, which was the first time that China published an import and export statistics report regarding ethanol since the trade war has erupted. And their data showed that they've been importing a lot of ethanol from Indonesia and Malaysia. And Mike, do you know how much ethanol those two countries make uh, little <laughs> to none it's not a lot yeah little to none so it sounds like china has been circumventing the u.s going around them and importing ethanol from malaysia and indonesia lately well here. i think these this would be then chinese ethanol importers going around the chinese tariffs 
because yeah. China's the one who put tariffs on ethanol, and so their produce, their importers are saying, "Yeah, we're not, we don't want to pay that. We're going to let mm-hmm. Indonesians import the ethanol from the U.S." Yeah, there's a seventy uh, percent yeah. import duty. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, it would always be good to get more ethanol consumption here at home, and our field reporter Bruce Gorder has that update. Delaney, what do you say? Should we throw it over to Bruce? Let's do it. President Trump has put his stamp of approval on selling E15 fuel for all vehicles 2001 and newer on a year-round basis. Randy Gard is the COO of Bosselman Enterprises and a member of the Nebraska Ethanol Board. He feels fuel retailers could benefit from the ethanol blended fuel. Well, I I think E15 from a retailer perspective uh, will be embraced um, to a huge degree for a, a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's it's better product, you know. It's higher octane. It's uh, at a lower price, you know, which attracts consumers, and it gives the consumer, you know, more, uh, you know, discretionary income uh, to go spend that money other ways, like they can go inside and buy uh, candy bars or iced teas or those types of things. So, uh, from a some, from a seesaw perspective, we're excited about uh, the opportunity that uh, E15 can do for us, not only on the fuel side but also inside the store. What I've seen, Randy, price-wise, is E15 has been generally five to ten cents under E10, and of course E10 is priced uh, anywhere from 30 to 40 or whatever below uh, regular unleaded. So, uh, as you mentioned, it's going to be a, a savings for the consumer and a choice for the consumer. I think that's exactly right. And when it comes down to it, what consumers, uh, what we've learned is they will they will turn left compared to turning right for a penny, so they certainly would do it for 5 to $0.10. Cents. Randy, uh, Bosselman Enterprises is famous for Midwestern truck stops, of course, but you also have the pump and pantry line of convenience stores. What has been your experience with blender pumps and E15 at those stores? Our experience has been on the locations where <clears throat> we, have, we have converted and started to sell E15, like in Lincoln and Bellevue, we, we've seen uh, the growth of E15 uh, uh, north of uh, 400% compared to you know, what we're selling the year before. Uh, so not only have we seen huge uh, triple-digit growth on just the sale of E15 on a consolidated basis, but we've also seen uh, you know, more customers and market share because of it. Let's talk about infrastructure now and the options that you have. Uh, what do you do at, the, at your pump and pantry stores, and what have you done in order to accommodate those new blending options? Well, infrastructure-wise, we've got two approaches. Uh, one is in some locations we're putting in an additional tank in the ground and then installing blender pumps, which allows us to, to blend E15, E20, E30, E85. And in other locations, we're simply converting an existing in-ground tank and taking out, you know, maybe like a clear product, like an 87 clear, and putting E15 that we buy at the terminal directly into that uh, tank and then just dispensing it out. So it's kind of a two, two-pronged approach. What is, uh, I know what your hope is as far as uh, the E15 rollout, but uh, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think they can get the rulemaking done by uh, next June? Well, everybody's optimistic, and it certainly seems like it. it, it sounds like that's kind of the, the, the date that everybody's got targeted. I, I think there'll certainly be some bumps in the road trying to get between uh, the president saying let's roll out E15 on a year-wide basis uh, to actually getting it passed into law and getting it out there. But I, I'm optimistic that I think they'll, they'll, they'll get that done. 
Yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, process. It's uh, slow, slow going in Washington. You've been working on the E15 for for a lot of years, and uh, finally, with the president's blessing, uh, you can move forward. So let's hope we can get that done by next summer. Well, I think the thing to keep in mind is that uh, there is more and more consumer demand for that, and I think you you can't ignore when when people know what they want. Um, you, you really can't ignore that. So I think that's certainly going to help as the consumers get more knowledgeable and uh, demand more and more E15. Our thanks to Randy Gard. He's the Chief Operating Officer of Vosselman Enterprises. They're located in Grand Island, Nebraska, and that's their headquarters. The pump and pantry stores are located mostly in Nebraska, and another large retailer that has been aggressive with different ethanol blends in Iowa is the come-and-go chain. Minnesota also has been promoting ethanol blends for several years, and many local fuel stores and co-ops are joining the ethanol bandwagon. I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. Well, again, that was Randy Gard, the COO of Bosselman Enterprises. Thanks so much to Bruce for bringing us that update. Yes, indeed, it is good to hear. Delaney, what do you say? Should we check in on the prices, the closing prices for this Wednesday in the markets? Let's do it, Mike. All right, and folks, our market prices are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, you can get in touch with them and bring their expert analysis to work for you on your operation by calling them at 312-277-0000. Or visiting them on the web at zaner.com. Now, let's see where we finish today. We've got uh, reasonable positive news here in the corn and soybean markets. December corn was up half a cent at 367 even. The March contract was up a quarter to close at 378 even. In soybeans, the November was up three and a quarter at 870 and a half, with January up five and a quarter to close the day at 883 and a half. Looking at Chicago wheat down day in that market today, the December contract was down four and three quarter cents at 503 even. The March was off five and three quarters to close at 512 even. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we've got down day in live cattle. The December live cattle contract dropped 77.5 cents at 114.60. February down 15 at 118.60. Unchanged in feeder cattle on the day. November unchanged at 148.97.50. January unchanged at 146.97 and a half. And in lean hogs, we've got mixed trade with the December down 30 at $57 even. And the February up 17 and a half to close at 62.35. Without further ado, let's take it to a conversation Delaney had last week at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual meeting. All right, well, I'm catching up with the National Corn Growers Association president, Lynn Chris. Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Sure, it's a great opportunity here. We've done a number of interviews and it's been a good day. Let's get to know Lynn before we talk about some national corn grower um, issues that you guys are working on. Tell me a little bit about your farming operation. Uh, My uh, farm is in the south central part of Nebraska uh, by a little town called Kennesaw. And uh, it's irrigated corn country, highly productive uh, part of the state. And are you just corn? Uh, No, we have a... A mix uh, at this uh, point in time because of other uh, business arrangements where uh, part of a larger operation that grows popcorn, oh. white corn, regular number two yellow, and then uh, some soybeans as well. So it's kind of a yeah a little more of a diversified cropping operation. 
Okay, now I've got to ask about popcorn because I don't really know anyone. Like, I, I'm trying to think through my memory. I don't know anyone that grows popcorn. What's that like? Um, yeah, it's uh, significantly different in that uh, popcorn doesn't ha- have the same kind of uh, stature as number two, and so stock quality is not there. Uh, ears are smaller, kernels are dense, and uh, yeah, so it's contracted uh, to go to Hamburg, Iowa for processing. I know exactly where that is. (laughs) Um, Does, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around this, does popcorn have the same growing season as regular corn? Uh, Pretty much, it's planted uh, a little bit later typically. And uh, because of seedling vigor and uh, it's harvested earlier uh, because of standability issues. And so, yeah, uh, what you use as far as uh, herbicides uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that it needs to go rotated onto soybean ground for the most part in order to maintain the purity of seed is uh, all considerations when you're raising popcorn. Interesting. Okay, let's talk about corn now, because I know that's your main gig here. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got into your current position of uh, the president of the National Corn Growers Association. Did you serve on a lot of boards and do a lot of leadership things leading up to this? Uh, yeah, my uh, uh, involvement with the Corn Growers Association has expanded a couple decades now. I And... Uh, I'm uh, a little shy at saying that because usually it's a situation where we like to have uh, people engaged, you know, and move through those opportunities. But I have always enjoyed uh, the work that the National Corn Growers Association has done. And, and yes, uh, started on a state level uh, committees and uh, worked through some leadership uh, opportunities there. Then... Uh, on to national, then serving on action teams, uh, got to a point where I thought that uh, I could and uh, would enjoy the the uh, opportunity to serve on the national board of directors. Uh, served there through two three-year terms, and uh, then was elected to be an officer. With your role, what are your responsibilities as president? Are you a figurehead, or are you getting in there? Are you doing policy work? Um, it, it it's uh, both. You know, I'm a primary spokesman yeah. for the organization. <laughs> whether you want to be or not. Yeah, whether it it comes with the role of being president. You know, it, it's uh, your year to be out there and fully engaged. Uh, major time commitment, but uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. And uh, yes, it depends upon. Uh, what issue that we're talking about uh, on Capitol Hill and uh, the opportunities to go back there and visit with senators and uh, House representatives as well. And uh, <clears throat> we also have had an opportunity because of some of the areas that I've served on action teams before uh, to continue to engage on uh, co-chair levels. Uh, just uh, and uh, that effort is around uh, future fuel policy for national corn that we're embarking in a uh, serious conversation internally about what that might look like as well. 
I want to get to that, but first I want to ask, how do you manage or balance between farming still and also doing this role? Because realistically, you're spending a lot of time probably making appearances, uh, talking to folks, working on policy for corn growers. How do, how do you balance it all? Um, that's uh, managed by presidents in uh, a number of different ways as uh, you know they seek to have that additional responsibility and time requirement and without a doubt well there's a couple uh, uh, farmers that are moving up or that have moved up through the officer rotation that don't have the large support team at home you know it's enough and uh, uh, those guys are just uh, Phenomenal at being able to manage the responsibilities around a farm to do both. Um, I am not quite in that situation or category, and so uh, I'm at a, a position where I've entered into some agreements with a, a young operator at home, and he's got uh, a lot of the day-to-day -day responsibilities, which frees me up then to engage in all things corn on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Let's talk about some issues affecting corn growers. The one I want to start with, I'm sure um, you can guess it, is E15. Where do you think that we're sit Where do you think we sit with that today? And do you think it's going to be possible to get that done by next summer? Um, well, that's the goal, and that's the instruction in order to provide a rule to allow for E15 and uh, it needs to be completed by May, essentially, in order to allow the full effect of the year round E15 next year. And uh, we've been told uh, by the EPA folks that they have other important things on their plate right now that is going to preempt their activity in establishing that rule for the time being. But we're hoping the initial rule will be rolled out sometime uh, late January or early February in order to still maintain that track of involvement where we can get in uh, the comment period then and issue a final rule by May. Lynn, do you know, maybe not a specific number, but do you know how much this is going to impact the corn industry? Um, it's uh, a remove removal of a hurdle that has been standing in our way in that situation and uh, that's a number that I should know but uh, um, is going to uh, if I give you a number it would be wrong because those numbers are subjective depending upon who you're talking to you know and uh, what that inclusion rate's going to look like there's not a mandate but behind E15 there's just the opportunity to provide it and so there's still the competitive interest between the petroleum interest industry then and the ethanol industry as far as inclusion goes <coughs> excuse me but the um, important thing is is that as we see it is that it's a next step as to the opportunity for inclusion by E15 up into the mid-level blends and uh, frankly that's why there's going to be significant resistance by the petroleum industry even though we're going through this uh, rulemaking process because an opportunity for us uh, 
unfortunately is a uh, loss of market opportunity for them. And, uh, you know, they're just as protective of their market opportunities of, as we are of ours as well. But the thing that uh, is the promise as we remove these kinds of barriers, and I mentioned uh, some work for future fuels policy, the automobile manufacturers have uh, said that they are up against uh, the regulations as far as compliance with the CAFE standards, the, the average fleet economy uh, going forward. And uh, uh, they uh, are looking at uh, rebalancing their interest in liquid fuels and uh, in order to uh, meet those uh, regulation requirements, they need to optimize engines and move to the next generation, which uh, it will involve uh, increased uh, compression ratios in those engines and turbocharged in order to get more out of less. And uh, in that regard, uh, one of those key components is octane. It just so happens uh, that uh, Ethanol is an excellent answer to that. Uh, it's an excellent oxygenate to provide that octane, as well as the fact that it's also the cheapest octane source, which is great for the public uh, consuming uh, uh, fuels of the future. And uh, ethanol also uh, has the lowest environmental input as far as carbon output goes. So there's there's all kinds of good things to say. Uh, you won't hear a lot of that across the board uh, out there because uh, there are folks that are detractors to that situation uh, would like to make that conversation a whole lot more difficult than it needs to be. I mean, you make a great point. I think a lot of people forget that this is not a mandate or, I mean, it's not requiring us to buy E15. It's just the ability to sell, to sell it year-round. So let me ask you this, Lynn. Do you think that the public will be pushed to turn to E15 because of this, because it's available year-round more so, or because car manufacturers are starting to push and, and make vehicles now that are E15 capable? Uh, yeah, E15, uh, depending upon what the base fuel is that it's being uh, blended with, doesn't necessarily carry the kind of uh, octane number that uh, consumers are going to get that uh, ultimate value out of because uh, we're not producing the kinds of engines that extract the opportunity for that octane uh, today, but it's coming. And uh, the situation uh, is that not only is ethanol a cleaner burning fuel, which has a lesser impact on the environment in general, but it's also a cheaper fuel uh, to be offered at the pump if it's priced right competitively. And uh, that's a value to the consuming public as well. Final question for you. What, uh, what's the next big thing that National Corn Growers is working on now that we've kind of got E15 hopefully taken care of? Um, I, I hate to keep coming back to ethanol, but ethanol is the opportunity then uh, that has a sound science base behind it. 
uh, going forward and uh, I've talked a little bit about the future fuels policy and that's the next horizon that we're looking at that has a major impact. All right, Lynn, thank you so much. It's great to visit with you today and I hope you have a good annual meeting here. Well, it is certainly great to get to know some of the leadership going on at our national level. That was, again, Lynn Crisp, who is the current president of the National Corn Growers Association. Absolutely. Fantastic discussion. A lot going on there. And, folks, we've got a lot going on at Ag News Daily's new home at the Global Ag Network. Be sure to get in there. Check out our website at globalagnetwork.com. If you find a bug and we're sure you will let us know there's a contact form or you can always reach out to us on social media just search for either ag news daily on facebook and twitter or the global ag network just global ag network on facebook and twitter so we can be aware and we can get things corrected with that delaney what do you say should we let the people go let's let them go